I don't really feel like a professional, so it surprises me when musicians who are in some way speak to me. Like last December, I found myself talking with Phil Alvarum. The music that he's made under the name Mount Erie has floated in and out of my life since 2009. Phil's got a long history of making music, but my safest guess is that if you know of his work, you know of it under the name The Microphones. His 2001 album, The Glow Part 2, is an indie essential. Every article and interview about Phil is required to mention this fact, and that, in 2003, he stopped recording as The Microphones. I, I really, I, I hope I never do that again, just because it was such a pain in the ass to have to answer questions about why did you change your band name for over 10 years <laughs> like literally every single interview so i really don't want to change my band name ever again <laughs> how has that stuck to you for so long how, how come maybe because there was no explanation really it wasn't a satisfying reason i was just kind of like i don't know i wanted a new thing which actually is a pretty great reason <laughs> since he made the switch to mount erie Phil has released a long string of material in the last decade, each album more critically acclaimed than the last. And yet, he has never quite shaken off his legacy as the microphones. It, it sort of seemed like it became the thing that people knew about me. Oh, he's that guy that used to be called this, and then he was called that. But after today, hopefully, we can leave this past behind us. My name is Brendan Maddox, and you're listening to Stories About Music, a new podcast on the subjects of music journalism, and memoir, and how the line between those three things is often not as clear as I had hoped. This is Story About Music number one, Between Two Elverums. I first met Phil Elverum in late October of 2009, during a concert at MassArt. That era marked a turning point for both Phil and myself. I had recently moved to Boston for college, and he had just released a harsh, cavernous record called Wind's Poem. The music that Phil was making shifted, from hushed folk to a point somewhere beyond easy description. Wind's Poem was the first in a trio of records to be named for immutable natural forces that are going to outlast the scale on which we live. But Phil has toyed with that subject and its personal meaning for most of his career. One of the more offbeat moments on Wynn's poem, and the thing that stands out, is this one song, Between Two Mysteries. It adapts Laura Palmer's theme from the TV show Twin Peaks. And while there's a similar vibe to both the show and Mount Erie, it should be noted that by 2009, Phil had a reputation as a neo-Luddite. TV show references are not common in his work. Space. 
have you had a moment with Twin Peaks where that, I guess, became important or imprinted on your memory in some way? My dad was really into it, and I was just barely allowed to watch it because I think my parents knew that it was scarring. I think I was in sixth grade, and I remember it vividly. It, yeah, it really marked me. Like, I had nightmares for a long time. lived in this house that was still being constructed. Well, so we lived in this, like, shack, and then there, the main house was still being constructed. Mostly we hung out and watched TV and lived in this small garage building. But my room was the first room to get finished in the main house. So after watching Twin Peaks, I would have to walk down the trail in the dark to my room, and it was exactly like Leo and Shelley's house. This, like, bare stud wall tarp... <laughs> Tarp flapping is so scary. And then also, like, not to mention the pine branches blowing in the wind and actual owls hooting. (laughs) It's very much like living in the show. It's rare to hear Phil tell these kinds of childhood stories in print. I felt excited, even a little smart. I could draw a line between those nights in the dark and Mount Erie's focus on nature and mortality. This the scene you just described sounds like one of those. Um, it sounds like one of those things that, like, when you're thinking about how do I view the woods in a way that you know, while I'm writing songs about it, well, it was a pretty like kind of scary, dark place when I was younger. Mm, no, not at all. I mean, I do remember wanting to run from one house to the other because we we used to have our TV. We kept our TV room in that smaller garage building and it was down a little trail so walking back and forth between the main house and the tv shed uh every night i do remember sprinting (laughs) (laughs) the fact that your family kept its television in a completely separate building down a dark trail i feel like that's (laughs) somehow significant it doesn't mean we watched any less tv like we are fully (laughs) we fully watched all the tv it is strangely intimate to imagine a preteen Elverum huddled in front of the TV on Thursday nights with his family. Because the picture that journalist after journalist has painted of Phil is that of a wide-eyed woodsman with little use for modern touchstones. I had imagined his childhood would involve a lot less electricity. It was a pretty uh, fairy tale-like existence. I grew up swimming in a lake and whatever running alone in the woods. Still, I felt more successful than the first time I interviewed him in an ambush that I sprang at the show at MassArt. I think you asked if I viewed them as this dark, scary place, but I definitely didn't and don't. It's just, it's more complicated than that. Uh, well, then, how would you describe it? No sun to block out No bird of blaze Close, dark voices Do you really think there's anybody out there? A large section of this island is preserved forest land. It hasn't been logged in a hundred years, so it's pretty much grown back and the trees are big and there's lots of different kinds of moss and stuff. I just view it as a complex place, I guess. 
you see these different types of decay and life happening on top of each other, and it's sort of like um, looking at a system that works well without interruption. Looking at that, I guess, how do you see yourself with the woods? Do you see yourself as, I guess, part of that natural world or separate from it? Separate because we, I am. I mean, I'm there walking with, like, my neon orange coat and my... <laughs> my iPhone. Except for a few years in his late teens and early 20s, Phil has lived in the town of Anacortes, Washington for his entire life. Anacortes sits on Fidalgo Island in the northwest corner of the northwest corner. It's about an hour and a half drive down to Seattle. Phil grew up on the outskirts of town. Growing up was a transition from being aware of my, like, forest and lake existence as a child out there to hanging out in town more, getting my driver's license, being fascinated with the world outside, and just expanding. And so, um, yeah, it was like a gradual trans transition into appreciating things like hanging out in Tokyo <laughs> or whatever. He moved down to Olympia, Washington for college. After two semesters, he dropped out to become a full-time member of the city's insanely prolific arts community. Basically, the only thing I did with my life was go to the studio every day, all day, or go on tour. And with the backing of K Records, he crossed this great country of ours and the oceans that border it. You're like a really world-traveled person, um, and yet you chose to settle in Anacortes. I guess, I guess why? Well, I guess I just haven't been to the place that felt more like home. I'm open to the idea, but nowhere has grabbed me more than this place. I don't know why that is. Like Phil, I spent my late teens and early 20s somewhere else. College. And then moved back to the place I grew up, a town in the Philadelphia suburbs. There's something unique about it but I don't know if I find it as engaging as Phil finds Anacortes. And I also sort of uh, ethically believe that people should identify with where they're from or be proud of where they're from. I think that uh, like regionalistic pride is a good thing and something that's pr pretty thin these days. Was there ever a point where you felt like you weren't, um, I guess, proud to be from Anacortes? Yeah. I don't know if I'm proud now. I mean, it's it's a weird place. We got problems, <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's I just am from here. And I I guess when I went to Norway, I was like, maybe it will feel more like home when I get there. When Phil turned 25, he left the country. But during his time in Olympia, he'd recorded six albums as the Microphones, including his Albatross, The Glow Part Two. Amongst other accolades, a younger, kinder Pitchfork Media named it the Album of the Year in 2001, a title that Phil now shares with Vampire Weekend, Kendrick Lamar, and Kanye West. The Glow Part 2 was the last hairy, experimental record to win the honor. Phil says he barely noticed the praise. He was in his own world, recording the final Microphones record. I, I do remember the shift from the songs I was writing and during the glow part two and before then being more about like people basically 
and interpersonal relations and also like the moon and the sky and stuff like that but still using those symbols to describe what's going on between people. The Glow Part 2 is kind of a breakup album. It winds through a messy, scatterbrained 20 tracks to a distant foghorn bleeding in the darkness, which is where the sequel picks up. I feel like I just sort of wanted to go bigger. I wanted to go beyond human in a way, or, or something. Go. I felt like these emotional songs of, of torment or whatever were uh, kind of adolescent. <laughs> Or, or not, not to be condescending towards them, but uh, there, there's more to life than if you're sad about a girl. The sequel to The Glow Part 2 is an immersive record about confronting the universe that, I have come to find, is my favorite thing Phil's former project ever made. He called it Mount Erie. Then he left the country. Do you mind like restating like exactly uh, why you decided to move to New- Norway? I at the time I didn't know why. I mean I didn't really have a reason. It was only in hindsight that I understood that the reason was to um, grow up, basically. <laughs> It was sort of a fantasy that I had since I was a teenager of just like moving somewhere. I think a lot of people probably have this fantasy. Moving somewhere where you don't know anyone and uh, reinventing yourself or just like being unknown. And I had never been to Norway before and so I had this idealized version of what it was like there and I just was like, all right, well, I'll go there forever. His exile lasted for six months during which time he lived in a small cabin outside of the Norwegian town of Buda. His experience there tapped into what he'd been searching for while writing Mount Erie. I don't know, I just sort of view view it, nature, quote-unquote, as like a blank piece of paper. It is a, a beautiful and complex blank piece of paper. When he returned, he took Mount Erie as the new name for his recording project. If you've wondered what the significance of that name is for the last 15 minutes, it's a real place and it shares Fidalgo Island with the town of Anacortes. He settled there and founded P.W. Elvrim and Son, his private press for all of the things that he makes. Records, art books, packing tape, posters, zines, friends' albums, and one-off CDR mixtapes that explain the concept of Mount Erie. And it's here where most profiles of Phil Elvrim run out of space. I've been getting frustrated with music journalism. Like all forms of the fourth estate, it's suffering from clickbait and accelerated news cycles. But fewer people care enough about stories about music to question this problem. I have a hard time not getting self-righteous about all of this. The lack of focus has led to some shoddy work, especially on the bands that I love. It happens to every musician in the public eye, but something about Phil in particular makes him very easy to misconstrue. Maybe. I complain about it a lot, too, though, so maybe maybe that's why. But let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I myself have written dozens of awful, lazy profiles. My original sin being, of course, 
a story about Mount Erie that I wrote six years ago. When I first realized that I was making stories about music, I knew that Phil would be a good place to start. It's a do-over for my whole career, a chance to explain how Mount Erie and Phil have evolved beyond the certain few details that are repeated over and over again. I first became aware of this change in 2012, when I started to shift away from focusing purely on angst about girls and started adding a daily dose of existential anxiety to my life. At the same moment, Phil released a new album called Clear Moon. The opening track, Through the Trees Part 2, took another left turn. It's kind of got this feeling as though, uh, it feels as though like something sort of drastically changed. Most of the earlier Mount Airy stuff, the woods are sort of like a, a metaphor for both the universe and like the inside of a person, which in a way is also the universe. Mm-hmm. But with Through the Trees Part 2, it felt kind of like you were suddenly like looking at them as separate from yourself. And I, I think that that's a, a really great moment because the, the sense that I get from listening to Through the Trees Part 2 is just this sense of uh, utter existential terror, I think is a good way to describe it. Hmm. That all of a sudden it's like um, the primary metaphor that uh, I'm used to from Mount Erie has suddenly disappeared. The two things that were once like in harmony are not in harmony anymore. Huh. I wonder what part of the song makes you, specifically makes you feel that way. Misunderstood and disillusioned I go on describing this place I think part part of that is I tend to talk about mortality in a way where I doesn't I forget that it's um, heavy or sad because <laughs> I honestly think about it um, just kind of matter of factly most of the time even when close ones to me die like family members or whatever of course it's very sad and heavy and I feel those things but also for whatever reason it's always on the forefront of my mind that like that's that's what happens that's uh you know no biggie (laughs) um even though it's like the biggest biggie but uh I wasn't feeling dread or terror or existential heaviness with that song in fact I was trying to just like be as direct and factual as possible. That song I almost felt like the album doesn't officially include that song the album starts with the second track that song was more like just a mission statement or a preamble or something where i'm like okay i'm about to sing these songs but just to set a few things straight here's what i'm about to here's some information for you i remember writing that song actually 
um, a day or two after doing an interview with somebody that was particularly, um, I just was left with this feeling of like, man, they didn't get what I was trying to say at all. I better try harder to say it more clearly. sat down and was like basically wrote a letter to the interviewer as I, I was personally thinking like of this exact person or at least as a starting point and just trying to like spell it out what nature is what nature means what my relationship is with it which maybe did shift at that album perfectly clear I didn't realize this before, but the natural world that Phil writes about, it's not an abstract. He's just writing about home. And it was really refreshing, actually, to give up on metaphor and poetry and uh, double meanings and stuff as much as I could and just try and say the thing as directly as possible. While I was researching this, I found an article that I wrote maybe five, six years ago and rereading it and then comparing it to the notes that I've been taking and I guess the way that uh, my relationship to your music has changed, um, I was like, wow, I feel like I didn't get any of this right. I should be clear about the fact that I don't plan... It's my own fault for all these misunderstandings. It's not the responsibility, or I shouldn't take it for granted that I'm being clear. It's not the responsibility of the listener to get these uh, sort of abstract and subtle ideas I'm trying to say. What what drew you to the abstract ideas in the first place, if you wanted to it to be incredibly clear? My main goal is to say something true and n- not empty. So those that's pretty hard to start with. So if I wanted to be totally clear, if my main goal was being totally clear, then I would write songs about simpler things like... Uh, love. <laughs> I guess love's not simple, but, um, you know, there are less abstract ideas to try and tackle. But, uh, I'm, I'm trying for something bigger, I guess. It's interesting, though, that in, when, when you wanted to go bigger, you ended up going inside yourself in a way. I feel like with pre-Mount Erie, in terms of the band, I mean, you were sort of talking about nature imagery as separate from yourself. Mm -hmm. But now it suddenly became a way of exploring, I guess, your internal thoughts and feelings. Yeah. Also around that time, I was probably reading more Buddhist poems and this idea that the external world is actually just created by our own sensory organs. Like, everything is solipsistic i'm not sure if that word means that thing but uh this idea that our s- ourselves 
are actually, you know, seeing the world into existence or thinking the world into existence at every moment. That that chimed with me. I, I think I still kind of write from that personal zone. That personal zone, like the Anacortes forest land, is murky. As an outsider, shining a flashlight on Mount Erie once every album cycle, I can only see parts of this leviathan that Phil is wrestling with. Why do you want to try for something bigger? Well, because we're all going to die pretty soon. Why, why not try and do, do the best possible thing while we're alive? That's a good point. I guess, um, I think what, what I would like to know, I guess, is, uh, is why, why this particular, why these, this particular set of questions is important to you. Like, hmm. why is this the, the thing that you want to explain before you die? I guess I don't know what it is that I am trying to explain. I'm exploring it at the same time, but for myself, exploring these ambiguities. And in a lot of ways, just describing my experience uh, and, and the parts of my experience that feel like they tap into something bigger than than like mundane existence. And sometimes it sounds like Phil isn't quite sure what he's grabbing at. Do you feel like you have moments often where you're able to be completely clear, like completely in the moment or tap into existence? Yeah, sometimes. It's been a while. But I used to have a more regular routine of having like really long breakfast coffees and reading books of poems out out on the porch I would like give myself a lot of time to have these moments of blankness like blank clarity but lately I've been swimming laps at the pool like deeply into swimming laps where I forget about everything other than this focused thought early on was that what recording in a studio felt like as well no and it and it still doesn't like recording is a complex and and like sloppy exercise which is super fun but it's more a way of creating worlds with clutter to to maybe like lay this little razor sharp idea on top of this cluttered world and sloppy is exactly how I'd describe my experience producing radio stories and Phil's purpose to lay a razor sharp idea on top of a cluttered world sounds very similar to mine across 15 years or more Phil has mapped his internal and external landscape so well that I can see myself in it by documenting my personal experiences with music in this way could I understand it better 
explain it more clearly? Could I understand myself? seen as home, mind like a falling flower, like a wide ocean reflecting whatever, on its dark waves and rows unclear, unending thoughts distorting the only moon, the light from nowhere, beneath all this the liquid stone, beneath the fountains and the road, all solid things I'm shown, a pool of placid water pours in the window. Basements flooded, the walls are grown. I'm not. I'm not satisfied with any of them. Actually, I don't think that there are satisfying moments of clarity, really, in any of them. <laughs> um. I think that's why I keep making records, actually, is because I'm like, no, wait, let me, let me try one more time. I mean, they're fun to listen to for me, but they don't feel satisfying or um, successful in that way. When we spoke, Phil had just finished preparing his new record, Sauna. Just like Through the Trees Part 2, it pulls back far enough from the forest so that you can see the town with Phil inside of it. In the press release, Phil called Sauna the ultimate Mount Erie record. Does that mean it's also the last Mount Erie album, or just like a true conception, I guess, of what Mount Erie is? I didn't decide what ultimate meant. <laughs> I left I left it open, and that's the truth. I, I don't know. I don't know what the future is. But it does feel like I'm so satisfied with Sauna that... Uh, it, if it were to be a stopping point, I would be satisfied with that. But I'm not, I'm not being coy right now. I actually don't know what's next. And while he figures that out, I'll be right here, trying to figure out him and so many others like him. I still feel like I haven't quite described Phil Elverum properly, but that's for another time. Bill Elvrum lives in Anacortes, Washington. Sauna is out now on P.W. Elvrum and Son. You've been listening to Stories About Music. Our show is produced today by me, Brendan Maddox, and approved by Kana Doles. Our website is investigatingregionalscenes.org, where you can find this and very soon other stories about music. If you haven't already, subscribe to us using your local podcast provider. All songs in this episode were written by the microphones or Mount Erie, 
except for the opening track, Floating Through Summer, written by Mark McGuire and Trouble Books. You can find them listed in order of appearance at our website. As an aside, the most helpful piece of research for this story came from an interview with Phil Elverham on the podcast The Wandering Wolf, hosted by Yoni Wolf of the band Y. Thank you also to Michaela for her patience. I'm Brendan Maddox, back next week with another story about music. Next week on Stories About Music. I skated right through the, the dead time. The story of Australia's Blue Tile Lounge and the subgenre that is slowcore. Yeah, slowcore. Yeah, so the irony of that is that we, we, we essentially brought it on ourselves. <laughs>